Welcome to She Illuminated. I'm Jana Fuchs, a licensed clinical psychotherapist and soul coach for burnt out women and moms looking to take control of their stress and say hello to a more joyful life. I'm also a mom to two incredible young humans, one of whom is autistic. Together, we will dive into real, raw, and messy conversations about intuition, vulnerability, and the resilience of the human spirit. We all deserve the gift of connection to ourselves and to our lives. So let's spend a little time together here, and perhaps we can walk through the rest of this day feeling just a bit more brightly illuminated. Let's go. Hey, how's everyone doing today? Welcome to episode seven of She Illuminated. I am so happy that you've carved out this time for yourself today. And as always, I hope you find something meaningful, inspiring, and hopeful to sink your teeth into as you listen along with me. And if this podcast has kept you thinking, feeling, or moving toward new ways of looking at yourself or the world around you, and you're enjoying the free content that I put together for each week, then please take a moment to rate and review the show. I'd be so grateful. You can even press pause right now to do it and then come back. It really just takes like 30 seconds or less. Okay, so I am dedicating this episode not only to all of my beloved black and brown friends and members of my amazing community, but perhaps even more so to my white friends and members of that same community. The topic of race feels ever-present for so many people. As my black and brown friends more than well know, the topic did not go out of fashion at the end of COVID lockdown. And for many of my white listeners, I assume you listen to the show because something about my perspective and value system resonates with yours. And for that reason, I also assume that, like me, you've done some of your own work around exploring your whiteness and how that translates to you, the choices you make, and all of the people you interact with on a daily basis. However... If you have white skin and you feel that this topic doesn't really apply to you or interests you, it really could benefit you and those you care about to ask yourself, why not? Why doesn't it matter to me? What if there really was some benefit to me to learn about my whiteness? I promise, though the work is often uncomfortable and painful to confront, you can begin to feel a bit better in your own skin and body when you start exploring your own history of whiteness and the story of this country's whiteness. But where would you even begin if you've never done this before? What if you feel too embarrassed, too overwhelmed, too ashamed? Who helps to facilitate this kind of hard and uncomfortable work for white people? Enter Jessica Karagu 
licensed narrative therapist and owner and founder of Hello Whiteness, an organization whose mission it is to consult with white people about race and racism, the idea for which grew out of both professional and personal experience. Jessica has been a dear friend and colleague of mine dating back roughly 15 years or so ago to our days in clinical training at Northwestern Graduate School. And in recent years, she noticed a growing desire in herself and other white people to delve into our deep connection to race and confront racial inequity. But she also noticed that something seems to be getting in the way. Jessica believes that similar to her own experiences, many white people in this country have been socialized in a way that leads us not to consider whiteness or race very much, and that hides the interconnectedness of racial inequity. And as a result, a lot of white people here have little practice and limited ability to confront what it means to be white or to understand how we are tied to issues surrounding race. Because of this, Jessica began and is still on a journey to confront and interrogate her own racial identity and story. She joins with other white people to help them to do the same. Thanks to her training as a therapist, Jess is skilled in creating a safe and open space to explore the often unspoken aspects of daily life. She specializes in helping white people examine their racial identity and explore stories and language around race. Together, Jess and the individuals and groups she journeys with learn how to live in ways that align with personal values, professional ethics, and ongoing growth. She works collaboratively to help generate self-driven and personally meaningful change. Her project reflects her identity as a white, heterosexual American woman, and it is also influenced by her personal experiences navigating race in an interracial marriage, raising biracial kids, and fostering relationships within a multiracial community. While Jessica is not an expert on whiteness or race, she is a white person who has been trained to ask questions and delve deeply. Through exploring her personal connection to racial inequity, she has come to believe that white people have a role to play in addressing it. Jessica's educational background includes a master's degree in counseling psychology from Northwestern University and a bachelor's degree in religious studies from Eastern Nazarene College. Additionally, she completed a fellowship at the Institute for Psychoanalysis in Chicago, Illinois, and obtained a specialization in narrative therapy. She has also worked in various capacities as a clinician, researcher, trainer, writer, and psychoeducator. And so why else am I choosing to talk about race and confronting our whiteness today? Well, it's also because this show is about, as you all know, if you've listened to any episodes before this one, um, this, is, this is a podcast that's all about taking life experiences that have felt difficult or painful in some way and tapping deep into our intuition, listening to those whispers and those hunches that we get that tell us, man, 
I feel like I need to do something about this, or I want to do something with this to better myself, to better the world, to make meaning of this. And that is precisely why I am having Jessica on the show today, because her story is one that started from a place of of pain, of emotional pain. And she has wrestled long and hard with confronting her own whiteness, right? And for her, staying silent with all of the skills that she has was no longer an option for her, right? Her whispers were growing louder over time. And so I'm bringing her on to provide you with more inspiration and and to show you that, you know, you too can honor whatever the whispers are inside of you that are telling you there's something that you can do with this hurt and with this pain. It gives me so much pleasure and pride to introduce you now to my beautiful friend, Jessica. Jessica Karagu, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I am uh, just totally and utterly psyched for you to be on the show today. I have been so looking forward to this day ever since I caught wind of what you have been up to recently. Um, And just to kind of let the listeners in on a little fun tidbit, Jess and I went to graduate school together um, as we were working our way towards our master's in counseling psychology at Northwestern University. And um, I think we were instantly drawn to one another. We had a lot in common and um, share a lot of the same values. We became mothers around the same time while we were working through our masters. So um, it gives me such delight to bring a personal friend on the show whose life work and mission is so profoundly meaningful and important and your message is so vital for people to hear. And so without further ado, let's let's just like get into it. Let's jump in, yeah. Okay. So I've started out each episode now. This is like a new thing I'm doing by having every guest talk about one thing that they're feeling grateful for today. And one thing that they are troubleshooting or, you know, trying to work through mm-hmm. because we are all in this human experience together. So, mm, um, yeah. 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 So for you, where wherever you want to start with that. Okay. So I am grateful for community. I think there are people who I've just started living life with and they just make every day kind of better. And when, when I have that, I feel like I function better in general as a human being because connection and belonging are pretty big to the human brain. 
black forward in red, as we learned a lot in our program. Um, and yeah, it actually reminds me of, I think we worked at Urban Balance together and covered each other's clients yes. during maternity leave. Yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah, and like that connects to community and just having, you know, yeah. knowing how much we, we cared for our clients and having them in good hands, people who we trusted. Like I could trust my clients to just be cared for by you just made the whole process so much easier. It made like life just a little bit easier, you know, it's just having that support around you. It's beautiful. And so I'm grateful for community. So now what I'm troubleshooting <laughs> is, um, so related to parenting, right? I'm at the stage where I have a middle schooler and two elementaries and they are coming into themselves. They're learning their own stories, their own style, their own interests and hobbies and personality. <laughs> and part of what I'm troubleshooting now is like how, and this is related to what we're going to talk about throughout the show, but how do I help them know the stories and the people and the places from which they come because race often complicates that for my family. There's uh, both sides of the family. So my husband's, you know, black, Kenyan, grew up, born and grew up in Kenya. And I'm white American from a very white family. And how do we help our kids understand how those two groups, those two places are part of them? It's part of their heritage. So that's what we're troubleshooting right now, I think. Um, because they're asking really good questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, um, in response to the first thing you said, thank you for for sharing that. Um, because yeah. I'm sure it's multi-layered and beautiful and complex and at times painful. And um, so I'm I'm definitely eager to dive in. Okay, so so I want to ask. What do you remember being told about non-white people as a child? And and after you talk a little bit about that, like I want to know also specifically about brown and black people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the interesting part was it there wasn't anything well truly specific about messaging or verbalization about brown and black people, right? It was more the colorblind theory. I was always told that we don't see color, race doesn't matter, everybody is equal. That was the expressed communication. Uh, but there was a lot of latent communication. So, you know, when I was real little, my best friend was a little black boy when I was like four. That was my very first friend that I can remember. But <laughs> um, we moved from a, kind of a bigger city to a, a small city in New Hampshire. And I don't know if you know anything about New Hampshire, but it's a pretty white state. And so I went to school with mostly white kids. We lived in a neighborhood with 
as far as I know, all white people. I didn't see anybody who wasn't white. And that was, something was communicated in that. The fact that my parents, my siblings, me, we didn't really have friends who weren't white. We didn't choose in my family, like my extended family of mostly white, you know, like all white people, we didn't choose partners who were not white. So there was a communication and all of that. Like, yes, we were saying that race didn't matter, but it looked like it mattered a whole lot because we were choosing the same race and we were surrounding ourselves with white people. And so all of this told me a lot about being white, <laughs> basically. Like, we don't talk about race. We don't talk about, especially um, if we see a person who's not white, we don't mention their race. We don't want to acknowledge it. And that was just, you know, it wasn't like the, the blatant communication. Again, it was like this underlying ignore race message mm -hmm. throughout my life. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the way it kind of messed me up or harmed me or the, the things that are lingering from that from that messaging as a kid that I'm still working through is that I never really learned how to talk about race. And I, and I definitely never learned how to look at what being white means in the context of my country, the United States, in the context of my own narrative about myself and the stories I tell myself about who I am and who my family has been and who we are today. Like race never came into that. The problem is race is very important to all of those things. And so I, I missed out on this opportunity and this ability and it impacted the way I am in relationships, my worldview, my ideas of other people. And I'm still trying to unravel all that now mm -hmm. as you know, I've been married for more than 20 years <laughs> to this person, to this, this, this man and still working through all that race stuff that was just piled on. And, and like, it's, it's not just that it was, you know, what I learned as a kid, it's throughout like American culture, all these messages about white being white, uh, all these, the privilege to ignore examining race, <laughs> right? Those are all like reinforced throughout American culture. So it's, it's, it's hard to try and, you know, work on that stuff from being a kid, but then also work against almost your own culture and trying to examine whiteness or think about being white or sure, all that stuff. Sure. That makes so much sense. And when you say it's a privilege for white people to ignore it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, and it's convenient. It's very convenient. Again, even if it's coming from a seemingly good place and a well-intentioned place, it's, it's also very convenient um, to be able to ignore race or say, we don't see, you know, we don't see differences in color. Everyone's, you know, we're all just people and, you know, we're colorblind and, and it's very easy for white people to, to feel that way. Um, you know, but anyone who is not white, um, living in this country doesn't have that convenience. No. Right. And so you can understand yeah. how um, that might feel to anyone who is not white. Um, so, okay. So, 
do you remember in terms of like specifically brown and black people, any kind of explicit things that you may have been told um, or that you observed and or more implicit kind of like covert messages? Yeah, so the implicit messages are definitely something that I can recognize now. The fact that we didn't really go around people of color very rarely. I mean, it was, we still, we still talks about my mom's friend and how my mom was, was dating this, this black man and we went to his church and they always talk about how we went to the black church. And I was, and I'm like, that's how rare it is that we remember this one time that we went and we were the minority in the room, like right? this one experience where that's, and that's the thing that kind of stuck with our family, right? It's like, we were just the weirdo white people there. Um, that's telling, that tells, that's telling to me about how my family collectively approaches race, like what we do about it. And I think there's, there's, you know, there's been other times where, you know, we moved to Chicago, right? When I was going to grad school, I lived on the South side of Chicago. And I remember one time, one of my white family members coming to visit and they're like, they whispered, we were driving in the car, first of all, with the windows up and they whispered to me, there's a lot of black people here. And I was like, why are you whispering first? And second, yeah, this is my neighborhood. This is where I live. Like, it, it wow. just was another, it was just another, like another experience of like, oh, okay. Like race has meant something in my family this whole time, Yeah, but we've just ignored it. We've yeah. just like, just not paid attention to that. Yeah. We, we've, we've just, we've said it doesn't matter. Right. But yeah. when we have, when I have these experiences, I'm like, oh no, it's mattered. It's whiteness has mattered quite a bit to us. Yeah. 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 And I think for a lot of us, what you just said is really relatable on many levels. Whether or not you're married to someone of the same race as you are, um, but in the sense of like as we get older and we kind of, you know, start our own lives and partner up if we decide to do that. And um, when we step away from, when we get further and further away from our childhood and our families of origin and growing up in that house as a kid, and then you, and then you spend some time for extended periods of time with your family and you're kind of like, whoa, it's all coming back to me now. How yeah. much this stuff made an impression on me and how, right. it, and right. how at the time I accepted it as normal, right? Because mm -hmm. I didn't know anything else. And then you get older and if you're paying attention and you're a truth seeker, you start to kind of realize like, wow, that um, I have to work to undo some stuff. <laughs> and I think yeah. race is one of the big ones talking about race and racism and, and yeah, all of that. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Definitely. I would say even in our profession, you know, we both trained to be therapists, right? And I, our, I loved our training program. I think it was great. I definitely grew and changed and challenged myself in ways I never had in my whole life. But I never had to look at my own race mm -hmm. and how my race impacts that clinical practice that I might have, mm -hmm. relationships with other white clients, 
relationships with people of color who come for therapy, like, or even like the way that I got into the program and our program was graduating mostly white people and how the world of therapy is, is mostly white people yes. providing this, this healing yes. service. Right. Yes. So, yeah, I will add on to that though. <laughs> one, one correction. Um, we did have, if you remember a class on multiculturalism and the professor was the one black professor in the program. That's true. And she true. was responsible. And PS also one and PS one of the only out of like the small, I think like out of like the two or three women professors. She was one of only two or three of women professors. And she was the yep. only black professor. And it was her mm-hmm. responsibility to, to teach. teach about multicultural competencies and counseling. Yes. And but the thing is, like we were taught about multicultural competencies, as in, to me, the impression is like, oh, white is normal. Yes. You have to learn as a white person how to deal with people who are not white. Yes. And that just already in itself is problematic as a starting place. Yes. 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 Totally agree. Totally agree. (laughs) Yeah. But you're right. It was it was on the one the one professor of color to teach all of us about. And the thing is, is like once I'll speak for myself, once your eyes are open to it as a white person and you really start learning about it, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would say as like, especially as what we, what we are involved in, right? Like healing professions where we're, we're seeking to do our own healing, but then also journey with other people who are just trying to do better and trying yeah. to be better and trying to yeah. find better in their lives. Yeah. And so for us, I feel like it's it's just something that a lot of us are going to run into as we're trying to do this sort of healing work. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So fast forward. Uh, this part is gets a, a little more um, maybe fun to kind of like reminisce about. But, um, <laughs> like meeting the love of your life, David, in mm-hmm. college. And can you say a bit about the different worlds that you and David each came from and what you instantly loved about him? <laughs> Oh, wow. We came from such different worlds. (laughs) We come from such different worlds because we're still very influenced by the worlds we from which we came. Um, So I, like I said, spent a lot of time in very white New Hampshire. And David grew up in Kenya and came to the United States for college. So that was his first time being here and being away from his so far, so far from his family, right? And we met like the first day of college. So some like freshman orientation, something. He's very like quiet and just kind. And uh, just even from the first time meeting him, I could just tell he was one of the best human beings I was ever going to know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So very, very different worlds, right? Like I, I come from a New England family where people that I know are very loud and 
forthright. You, you pretty much, my family, you pretty much know how, how you stand with everybody. Yeah. Because we will tell you loudly and clearly in front of the whole room. We share our grievances regularly. And David's family is very quiet, much like him, and, and just kind. And there's, there's um, a little bit of conflict avoidance. Mm. So people like to keep the peace. Mm. And that's just my family likes to just wreck the peace, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're just, and so, so when David first came to my family, it was very loud for him. And he was always like, why are you guys fighting so much? And I was like, we're just having a discussion. And I feel like David is probably the quietest and most subdued. And like he, when he says something, it, it needs to be said. It really needs to be said because otherwise he'll just keep quiet. And so when he speaks, I'm, I'm like, okay, let's hear because you don't have to say as much like I do. Like I'm always having an opinion or a feeling about everything, right? Yeah. But he's, he saves his feelings and thoughts for only things that are really, really deeply important to him. Yeah. So, so I want to ask then, in addition to just how different you know, your kind of families or with the, in terms of like being outspoken with the exception of Joe, who maybe should have been born in your family, it sounds like, but. Um, no. <laughs> so funny. Um, it, like what else in terms of like culturally, right? So like I'm imagining these two boys kind of come over in their, you know, late teenage years uh, for the first time to study here in the States from Kenya and feeling perhaps for the first time that people are judging them and reacting to them in a way that maybe they've never experienced before due to the color of their skin, due to the fact that they have more melanin in their skin. Can you, like, can you say more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't speak so much for Joe because we haven't had a ton of conversations about it, but David and I have talked about it a lot. And I think partly, you know, when we chose to be with each other and get married, we kind of had to learn about race together because he, you know, he comes from a different culture and he was not considered, I guess, a minority, like what he was called when he came here. And also we had to learn about race together because, you know, I grew up not knowing and paying attention to race. And then all of a sudden he's not this full person, he's a black man here. It's it's like a diminishing label that's been put upon him that his, his whole personhood is wound up in this social identity of blackness, black maleness specifically. And what that means here in America, like he kind of had to figure that out. And so didn't I, mainly for the sake of his safety. Mm. And, you know, cause we see all the things that, that unfortunately happen to black and brown bodies in our country. And the way that there's just so much devaluing of the actual life and personhood. 
so yeah, so we had to learn about that pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 Did he, did you guys experience any of that in college? And either way, when did you start to really, and when did he really start to kind of notice like, oh, my safety, I need to be careful. And and what was that experience like for you to kind of be with him and that bearing witness to that? I was working in the North End. They were doing the Big Dig, which is this big highway expansion program where they were putting the highway under the, under the city, right? And so every week, the, the exits would change. Yep. You wouldn't know. <laughs> yep. I went to school in Worcester. And so okay. I'm, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah. It was maddening. So, yeah. The, the exit, I was working late and David came to pick me up and the exit had changed between like the morning when I went to work and the evening when we were leaving. And so he went to go take this exit and someone had gone in front of us and we got down the bottom of the exit ramp and there was a red light. So we, we stopped the persons in front of us where right behind them and, and the person in front of us turned left and then we turned left behind them. Then this cop on the opposite side of the road comes and pulls us over. And I was like, oh, brother, here we go. And this cop comes up to the window at like a 10, just ready to yell and scream. And he yells at David and he's like, what are you, a brain surgeon? Can't you tell how to drive in this city? And I was like, whoa, 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 officer. I mean, and I'm a white person, so I can do this, right? Like, I was like, first of all, that person in front of us did the same thing. And this exit, I do this every day. So it changed in the last 12 hours since I've been at work and it's just a mistake. And, and I was like, and as a matter of fact, this man just got accepted to medical school, medical school. So he could be a brain surgeon someday. Oh, oh, I love that (laughs) response, Jessica. This is like why I love you so much. (laughs) But yet as you're talking, I'm like, well, what if you weren't in the car with him? I mean, he would have been quiet and polite and followed every every instruction clearly. Like he, hands on the wheel, don't move him off, just sit calmly. And the guy, he would have just sat and been yelled at, I'm sure. Like he wouldn't have said anything to the officer. He probably would apologize for doing something wrong. Right. But he also doesn't have that privilege that you have. Is the no, point. No, 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 he doesn't. I should say it was a white officer too, so... Yeah, I feel I'm, like too when when other white people when when white people call in white people, you know, like can you like recognize your behavior? Can you see what you're doing? Because yeah. I can see it. And I'm a white person. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do that to another white person, right? And secondly, it's I I've, I've seen it just it it's more well received. By another white person yeah. from a white person, yeah. which is also sad, right? Because like David's voice and experience matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that what you just said—it's—it's it's, uh, a white person calling in another white person. The fact is, in your experience, it is better received, and um, I think that directly you know, translates into the work that you are currently doing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about 
your career trajectory um, and how and how your career path kind of reflects your personal experience um, as a white woman married to a black man and raising brown children, three beautiful, um, incredible people and um, how, yeah, how it all kind of ties together and also how you've tied your skill set as a narrative therapist into the work you're currently doing. I couldn't not talk about race anymore. I, I had married a black man and and if I wanted to acknowledge him and fully love him and care about his safety and what's harmful to him in this world, I needed to pay attention to, to race. And I think my struggle, like I, I, I wanted to pay attention and I wanted to do the right thing, but I didn't know personally as a white person in America, how am I connected to this problem? I don't, I couldn't see it. I couldn't make the connection. And for a long time, I struggled in that space. And then I started getting into narrative therapy because I really enjoyed it. I just had read some things about it and I had thought about maybe like expanding my, moving away from therapy and doing more talking with other white people about race. Cause I had been working on it for, you know, at that point, I don't know, probably like 10 years. And so I did narrative therapy. And then after I went through the narrative therapy program, just the way that narrative therapy conceptualizes people like in the context of environment and how we're performing identity in different contexts with like I, our identity is fluid, right? So I can be a white person married to a black man and still perform whiteness and white dominance out in the world. Cause I'm in a different context, different place. Mm -hmm. And it also helped me to, to frame the problem of like racial inequity as a bigger problem than just those racist white people right over there who want to be white supremacists. Mm -hmm. it, it, it wasn't just a problematic subset of white people. Mm -hmm. It was more that I could define the problem external to like just all white people so that then it, we can come together as white yeah. people to actually take it apart. Yeah, because when it's internal, when it's like that white person, it's you. You're the problem. Then it, how do we how do we address the problem? Yeah. What do we do? Yeah. So when I could like frame it as like, okay, so like we've had this system of socialization, right? And I'm I'm stuck in it. I'm caught up in it, and it's influenced me in major ways. I just started like unraveling it, yeah. like figuring out what are the stories that help me believe this. What are the stories I tell about myself or tell about others? Like there's this, you know, good white person story that I told myself for a long time. Like I'm a person from New England. We're from the North. We're the good white people. We did not want slavery to continue and yada, yada, yada. But if I actually read the real history of the United States, there's a lot of problematic white people. Mm -hmm. Like it's pretty much the history of the United States. It's problematic white people going around and causing problems for everybody else. Mm-hmm. So if I could like get a handle on what's keeping me, first of all, from knowing my own history, like the defensiveness around whiteness, the stories about whiteness that's connected to like patriotism and love for my country and things like that. 
if I could get around those things and then actually do the work of understanding the whole story, the story about how white people came to be, why whiteness was created as a category of human beings, then I could better understand where I was today, mm-hmm. where I was that day, right? Like what was impacting me, what was being problematic for me that day. Mm-hmm. So doing that is is basically like, it's been a journey. And throughout that journey, I really struggled because I didn't know a lot of other white people who were doing similar things, who were on a similar journey. And I felt a lot of loneliness. And then, you know, COVID happened and a lot of us felt loneliness because we were all stuck in our homes. And so I started a blog uh, about basically how I was exploring whiteness and trying to figure it out. And I wasn't a writer and I don't know why I thought I could write, but I still do the blog. I actually posted this morning. So um, um, I, I will say Jessica is a very, very humble. Um, she is an excellent writer. I have read some of your pieces. You are an excellent writer. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. The feedback and encouragement. Again, community, right? We yeah. need ourselves. We see ourselves as others see us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I started that blog because I was desperate to have conversations with especially my white loved ones. I just, once I started figuring out more about whiteness and how it impacts me, I just felt so much freer to talk about race, to actually be invested in care. And I got a better idea of what I could do myself about racial inequity and racial injustice, especially around all those those uh, horrible, violent things that were happening to black and brown bodies during COVID that we all got to watch from home because we were all stuck at home. So I started the blog and then that developed into now a coaching and consulting business, or I guess service, where I pretty much consult with white people about race. And I don't know if anybody's like, who? And how, um, but yeah, that's where, that's where I am today is doing that. Yeah. Um, I was debating if I should share this story or not. Ugh, and it's uh, a painful story. Mm. Um, but I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to tell it because it's important. So Sadly, very, very sadly, and and tragically, my mother's mother, so my maternal grandmother, was shot and killed by a young Black teenager in, let's see, my my. Parents were 28 years old at the time. I believe that was like 1970. Uh, hold on a second. Like 1972. Mm. And so I never, and this happened before um, my, my older brother and myself were born. So I sadly never had the opportunity to meet her, though I felt mm-hmm. very connected to her growing up and all the stories I heard about her. Um, and I really grieved, <laughs> even from a really young age, not knowing her. 
Um, but when I was um, going through um, my own COVID lockdown experience and doing my own work around my own whiteness, um, I became more curious about the story of mm. my grandmother's murder. And I became curious because the only thing that really I was told um, about the person who took my grandmother's life was that he was a young black kid, right? And that's the story that I heard um, or that I remember hearing since I was maybe seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think much of that other than I had this image in my head of black equals dangerous. Although um, my parents valued community and connection with all sorts of people from all different backgrounds and races. Um, my mother started uh, years later after, after the incident, um, she was an English professor and she started a nonprofit for underserved youth um, to learn the art of playwriting so that she could give kids an opportunity to have an outlet to express themselves. Um, and that was her way of making meaning of the event. Um, sadly, um, I lost my mom to cancer when I was 20. So I wasn't able to, during COVID, as I was doing my work around, my own work around whiteness, I couldn't really ask her about that whole um, making meaning of it for herself and the story behind the person who took her mother's life. But I did ask my father and he, and so I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, you know, I've just been thinking a lot about this. What else do you know about this person? Mm. You know, besides, because the only thing I remember hearing was he was a young black guy. And my dad said, well, he was a kid who, you know, was caught up in a gang and um, he was kind of known by other kids in the neighborhood as, you know, it was like a known thing that this kid was in a gang. And um, he, he basically took, um, he took a gun and he shot my grandmother while uh, she was waiting for the bus to go to work and um, took her purse and maxed out her credit cards. And I said, and then what happened to him? And he said, well, we were able to catch him and take him to court because another young black kid who was a newspaper delivery boy witnessed it mm -hmm. and went home and told his mother. And his mother said to him, we're going to the police station to report this. Now, that part of the story was left out when I was, mm -hmm. when I was a kid. And even as I tell it now, it's like my, like my heart like is in my chest because here I had these like really loving 
well-intentioned white parents who did so Mm -hmm. many things well and so many things right. Um, And I don't, you know, this isn't like me, like throwing stones or, but it's, it's more just the, the ways in which we never stop to question our whiteness and the stories that are passed down to us and how that shapes our worldview. Yeah. That young black man who told, went home and told his mother and that mother who took action to do the hard right thing, they're the heroes. Why weren't they mentioned to me, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I just wanted to share that story. And so I'm on my own journey of unraveling all of that. Um, And so I just, um, again, a a really deeply personal story, but I think it's one that's really important to share. No, I really appreciate you sharing the story and how you were looking for how your mom made meaning in it. And there was this big piece of the puzzle that you weren't even aware of. Yeah. And that's that's one thing I love about like what, what I've learned to do in narrative therapy is like looking at these stories and these people who have influenced us in these beautiful and powerful ways and then figuring out what does this mean? What has this meant? How do I see myself? Yeah. In light of this story. Yeah. The work is ongoing and I have a story not as consequential as losing a loved one. Definitely not. But I am still very much aware that I need to continue this work and continue to figure out how the way I was taught to be with race gets in the way of my daily life or like gets in the way of how I want to show up in the world. So I was at the gym and I pretty much go to the same gym every day. So I see a lot of the same people over and over and over again because I also go to the same classes. Not very unique. But I went to this one class. I go to this one class pretty regularly and it's uh, just a total body kind of weights and you need a lot of equipment to do this class. And it's usually pretty packed because it's right around lunchtime and that's when people have time, right? So I was in this class, I had gotten all my stuff and we were starting the class. And as we were doing one of the workouts with the weights, I realized that the weights I had got were way too heavy. I was just thinking that I was stronger than I was and it was wrong. Just another, just another um, <laughs> telltale sign of your ambitious self. Okay. <laughs> all right, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to chill out with the weights. So I went to go put them back and because the class was so full of people, there was somebody everywhere. So there was somebody standing right in front of the place where I needed to put the weights back and get different ones. Well, I stood there. I should also mention that this is a black woman standing there in front of the weights, just trying to do her workout. And I stood there. I just stood there looking at her like with my weights in my hands, you know, like can I didn't ask any questions. I didn't, I don't know. I just stood there and she was like, she looked at me probably after like, I don't know, 20 seconds. She's like, can I just work out please? And she said it really loud. And kind of a lot of people right around us noticed. And I was just 
frozen. And I just kept looking at her. And then I eventually awkwardly, right? Like, why am I being so awkward? I turned around and went back to my place and then went to get some other weights from a different outside of the room. <laughs> like I had to go out in the hallway. Uh, but anyway, I, I knew it was about race because I kept hearing her make comments mm. afterwards. And I also knew it was about race because of how I froze mm -hmm. because I was in front of other people. And I knew that what I was going to say or do could really be bad. And I froze because honestly, that's how I was taught to be with race as a white person. Like mm -hmm. I've seen other people freeze. I've seen myself freeze. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like this inability to catch yourself and to figure out how you want to show up in that moment. Mm -hmm. Can you, and I, I want you to continue with the story, but can you imagine if, like, do you think your re your reaction and, and the freezing would have happened if this was a white woman standing in front of the weights? Like, how do you think you would have handled the situation in that case? Yeah, no, I wouldn't have frozen. What would you have said? I wouldn't have frozen. What would you have said or done? I would have said, can I please switch out my weight? <laughs> or, right, could you just like scooch mm -hmm. a second so I can just do this? Because I have a history of conflict with white women, right? Like I know how to do that. I've done that. Been there mm -hmm. so many times. But a public confrontation with a black woman, mm -hmm. that's not, that's not in my experience very often. Like it's not something I can say that I can remember and build upon a skill and but what made you think it would have even been a confrontation well she was pretty frustrated with me for just standing there and the way she, the tone and the volume she yeah. was like she's like get away from me lady like yeah and it also like i was also very very cognizant that i was a white woman here taking up space that really I shouldn't be taking up right now because this person was just trying to do her workout and she actually was just asking to do what she had come there to do right like I she's not asking for anything beyond what we were all there to do she's uh -huh. not asking for any special mm -hmm. <laughs> preferences or preferences mm -hmm. she and she was already packed in like a sardine by the weights right and like kind of pushed to the side which yeah, for, yeah. which for her is probably in a way, like a, a familiar feeling. Right. Yeah. Cause I don't know what experience and, mm -hmm. and knowledge she's bringing to the interaction too. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm forever always showing up to these sorts of reactions as a white person. Yes. And I don't know what that, what that, that layer adds yes. to whatever, yes. whatever yes. can happen. Yes. So you were frozen. Um, I was frozen. So yeah, the workout class went on and, uh, going to the same gym at the same time every day, I did run into this person again. Uh, but at that time, I actually had my my youngest child with me, and she is obviously not white, and she's got this gorgeous little fro on her head. And the woman who I had that interaction with saw me with her, and she actually came over to me and was like, your daughter is so beautiful. And I was like, thank you. And she's like, she's so cute. 
And I was like, oh, wow. And I, I guess I say all that to say, like, that, even that horrible, weird awkwardness that I showed up with can be overcome. Mm. And I think she saw something later, because we've seen each other several times, where maybe, maybe, just maybe, I wasn't showing up as the whiteness that she's experienced as harmful in other in other ways in yeah. her life, which, because I'm sure people of color have many multiple experiences of whiteness as harmful or trying to take up space that, that they need to have, you know, yeah. um, that's kind of like our history here. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So there's redemption. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful story. I, and I love kind of like wrapping up on that note of hope um, mm-hmm. and redemption. And that in that story, you became more of a whole person, not just a white body. And she became more of a whole person, not just a black body. And mm-hmm. that is the juice of the work that you are doing. And I mean, man, is it important. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So can you, I know we're kind of getting towards the end here, but the work that you do now in kind of using pieces of narrative therapy, your blog, the app that you've created, um, you know, helping other white people to kind of like unlearn, um, (laughs) you know, what those those well-intentioned stories that we're all colorblind, like unlearn all that shit. Who specifically, when like when people want to reach out to you to work with you, who specifically are the people or the groups of people that you work with most typically? And what resources and services are available to them? if they're interested in working with you. So say you're a white person in a multi-race family, you partnered with a person who is not white, you adopted children transracially. So that would be like the more kind of personal level. Mm-hmm. And then also I work with organizations, um, white led organizations specifically, who maybe are trying to initiate some sort of racial equity program or response and there's something getting in their way. There's Mm -hmm. something stumbling, there's something catching them up. And I found that a lot of times it has to do with whiteness Mm -hmm. and like partnerships can form across race as long as white people are really invested in trying to figure out what whiteness means in Mm -hmm. ourselves, to ourselves, to our own stories and in our relationships, like it's there. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe why you're having trouble in this area. And I do implement a lot of uh, narrative therapy like practices into it and just the stance of, you know, as as a narrative therapist, we are influential, but um, not directional. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of self-motivated growth and change that is happening. And, oh, I do have a list of resources on my website too where uh, if people are looking just for a place to start, right? Yeah. They're loosely categorized. 
so maybe you can find where you need to start, but I have uh, resources and books. Yeah. So videos and podcasts on the resources page and then just books on the books page. Wonderful. And then if um, people want to reach out to you, what is the best place to find you? Perfect. So I have a website called hellowhiteness.com. And uh, there's a little get in touch button right at the top of the webpage. You can just go ahead and click that and I will get any responses you have right there to my email. Um, again, that's hellowhiteness.com. So <laughs> pretty yeah. easy to remember. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Jess, I, from the bottom of my heart to yours, um, you're just, you're incredible. I am just so full of awe and admiration of the person who you are. And um, for, for doing your own personal work around this, knowing what that feels like, knowing how hard and painful it can be, but also knowing how liberating and healing it can feel when progress is made. Um, but the work never ends is the thing. And I think that is clearly what um, propels you and motivates you. Um, and of course, your beautiful family. And um, I'm just so proud to call you my friend and my colleague. Oh. And you have such an important mission and message. So thank you so, so much for being here today. And I cannot wait to share you with, with the world. Um, so <laughs> yeah. And until next time, keep shining brightly. If you have enjoyed the show and want to learn more, you can follow me at www.sheilluminated.com or email me with comments and show ideas at Jana at sheilluminated.com. If you're interested in working with me as a coaching client, contact me at Jana at janafuchscoaching.com. And if this episode meant something to you, please consider supporting the show by taking less than one minute to rate and review the show. It makes all the difference in the world to help spread the word, and it makes it accessible to wider audiences everywhere. You can also take a screenshot of it and share it with a friend or on your socials. Tag me, Jana Fuchs Coaching. And as always, may you walk through the rest of your day feeling just a bit more brightly illuminated. Until next time.